Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham. Let's get on with the show. First, I'm really sorry this episode is so late. I'm currently selling my house ready for a move. That's meant a ton of clearing, cleaning, DIY and boxing up stuff. Then, realtors and estate agents coming in and all the rest. I'm not giving up on the show and hopefully normal scheduled releases will be back on track soon, at least until the history books are in boxes. Before we start, I'd like to say a huge thank you to the newest patrons, Lovable Chimney Sweeps, Josiah and Justine, and our newest respectable governess, Linda. Your support is much appreciated. I hope you enjoy the patrons' special episodes on Patreon. Also, I was recently a guest on a special episode of the Industrial Revolutions podcast. It turned into a two-hour chat with the lovely Dave Broker. You can check it out on the Industrial Revolutions podcast website or through Spotify and iTunes. It is available till November 2020. I've had a lovely email from Glenn Wilson, who pointed out that I got the details of the story of Jepetha in the Book of Judges slightly wrong in the last episode, since God didn't ask for the vow or give victory specifically because of that vow or even necessarily approve of it. By mistake, I apologise. The wider point about the difficulties of constructing a moral system still stand, but I'm also grateful for anyone who spots a mistake letting me know. I've had a few listener reviews, which I really appreciate. Your reviews give me huge support and insight. First is from Danny, 842003 in Australia, five stars. Quote, I've powered through about 20 episodes of this after finding it about two weeks ago. Their production quality is a little sketchy at first, but I'm very glad I didn't let it put me off. And you shouldn't either. People get embarrassed about the Victorians and their actions, but they shouldn't any more than they should about any other period of history. This podcast gives a great insight into the psyche of the people and how they moved the entire world on to a better future. End quote. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Then Paddy, five stars, quote, by far my favourite history podcast to date. Excellent narrative as well as in-depth analysis of themes. True history. Would very much like to see a podcast about Australia in the Victorian age. End quote. Well, you're in luck that we're going to be spending quite a bit more time in the Australias. Next up is from someone who's left an unpronounceable series of letters, but thank you. Five star, really good podcast. End quote. Then from Trouble Miss, four star from the USA. Quote, I really enjoy this podcast. It is extremely well-researched and typically extremely thoughtful. However, I was startled by the most recent episode, the faux philosophical gymnastics and rhetorical hand-waving that Chris tried to use to contextualise away the absolute horrors of imperialism, I found to be extremely troubling and ahistorical. His analysis completely failed to take into account that many Victorians were keenly aware that what was going on was morally reprehensible and ignores that there were concurrent political, economic and social ideologies that stood in direct opposition to liberal imperialism. It was not just the way things were, nor do bizarre comparisons 
to earlier pre-state societies make any sense in this context. I'm extremely disappointed and I'm not sure I'll be back, end quote. Okay, I'm really glad you left this review and I hope you've tuned in to hear the response. The empire was not a single entity and was extremely complex. That's why I'm running a whole series on it. The Philosophy of Empire episode aimed to explore empires in general and some of the reasons why humans act with violence and cruelty to each other. I wanted to emphasise that violence is just a part of creating an empire. You can't create one without it. Some people think the British Empire wasn't violent, and I have also tried to correct that. Others think it was uniquely evil. Again, I've tried to put it into place with the other empires in history and with the innate violence of humanity. I wanted to look at why humans seem to keep on doing this kind of violence and remind listeners that empires were an extremely common form of government, tolerated in a way that we simply don't today. Did some people at the time object to the British Empire? Yes, of course. But a high-level overview isn't a good place to diverge into all the objections or the episodes would be 10 hours long. What I will not do is a kind of balancing exercise where Empire A killed 50 million and Empire B only killed 5 million, so Empire B is somehow better. Nor would I ever say the Empire killed loads of people but there were lots of railways, so that's okay. I would explain what happened, why, and the consequences. Some of those consequences might have had a positive effect in the long run, but noting those is not a way of condoning the original act. I also always try to be scrupulous about pointing out the negative consequences of people's actions too. The point was to emphasise that people in multiple circumstances throughout history have resorted to violence and to try to get listeners to realise that many of those violent people thought of themselves as being good people or that they were doing something in a cause they considered good. I particularly wanted listeners to appreciate how much of their own worldview is shaped by a knowledge of outcomes that wasn't always apparent to people in the Victorian era. I chose the example of the Nazi execution of an innocent Jewish man precisely because I wanted everyone to realise that behind the statistics of total deaths in any event is a person with their own hopes, dreams and motives. That photograph is the closest most of us can come to understanding how it feels to be powerless before an imperial power and to bring it home to us by looking into the eyes of a doomed man about to be murdered. It is frightening to see the human soul stripped bare and I find it haunting. I want everyone listening to understand that behind the statistics of numbers killed are individual people robbed of their lives. That's why the episode was trying to break down assumptions to emphasise the vast difference in worldviews and also to look at the part of human nature that is dark and disturbing. Not to justify empires, I am not an imperialist and I have stated on more than one occasion during the podcast that the British Empire committed genocides, forced relocations and many other acts of barbarity. I won't condone or excuse those. My goal when presenting a podcast is to be as accurate as possible, show what happened 
And if I can, to explain the whys. As I said at the beginning of that show, the goal was not to change people's minds about empires, but to raise the issues around them. Look at the evidence and potential problems, then let listeners decide if they had a good framework to justify the views they held. If any listeners still feel I'm wrong, I'd love to hear from them, as the British Empire was world-shaking and should be part of a much bigger conversation than it actually is. On the wider point, I didn't mean to imply that there weren't fierce critics of empire, or that many Victorians weren't acutely aware that a lot of what the empire was doing was immoral. If that point didn't get made expressly enough, I'm sorry. It wasn't just political leaders who criticised the Victorian empire. There were plenty of artists, scientists, campaigners and others who abhorred the empire or violence in general. When we start dealing with the specific parts of the empire, we will see the details of the imperialists, anti-imperialists and people who were indifferent. The Victorian empire poses a particular challenge for studying as it was built very differently from previous empires, mixing trade and war to create vastly different governing structures in different territories. I'm going to quote historian John Darwin in his paper Imperialism and the Victorians, The Dynamics of Territorial Expansion. Quote, Imperialism may be defined as the sustained effort to assimilate a country or region to the political, economic or cultural system of another power. Formal imperialism aimed to achieve this object by the explicit transfer of sovereignty and usually the imposition of direct administrative control. Its informal counterpart relied upon the links created by trade, investment or diplomacy, often supplemented by unequal treaties and periodic armed intervention to draw new regions into the world system of an imperial power. Quite small powers could and did enter this game, and it could be played in any geographical setting. But its complex characteristics were most clearly visible in the expansion of strong western states into the extra-European periphery. No other power developed more varied and far-reaching imperial relationships than Victorian Britain. The futility of trying to make sense of Victorian expansion in terms of territorial or formal empire alone has long been recognised. But the central problem of Victorian imperialism remains how to explain why informal imperialism became the vehicle of expansion where it did, why formal empire was only extended in some regions but not others, and why only some zones of informal imperialism were later absorbed into the formal empire. In short, how should we explain the peculiar configuration of the world system bequeathed by the Victorians? Should we treat it as a finished artefact, economically and strategically functional, or as the incoherent, unfinished handiwork of drift and opportunism, end quote. The dynamics and philosophy of the British Empire change depending on what bit you look at. That is the challenge we face in understanding it. Today, I'm going to zoom us in a bit more, focusing on the Australias and the issue of land ownership at a high level. As with all the Empire episodes, this contains references to genocide and racism. Listener discretion is advised. And, as with all the philosophical shows, 
The aim is to explore the issues and consider them from as many angles as possible. What moral conclusions you draw will be up to you when you've heard the evidence. This is to give you the background and tools to place Victorian imperialism in a proper context. The issue at the core of settlement of the Australias is who should get to own the land? Should Indigenous people get more of a claim to land than anyone else and get to call themselves natives? When does an immigrant to land get to seriously claim to own it and to be from there? Effectively, when do newcomers become the new natives? As you can see straight away, this is an issue at the core of the Victorian settler empire, especially in the Australias. It is one that has been debated around the world with particular resonance in the United States, Canada, Australia, Tibet, Israel, Palestine, Taiwan, and so on. The question often ties to another intimate question, who are you? For many people, the answer to the question, who are you, comes back to their identity and relationship to the land. Identifying as Scottish instantly has an association, not just to a culture, but to a place and an idea about the land itself. But why? Land is just dirt and plants, rocks and water. How can it give an identity? The land in Scotland has been occupied by Picts and Gaels, then Scots and Vikings. Genetic studies, as set out in the wonderful book, The Scots, A Genetic Journey, have shown Scottish DNA has elements from West Africa, Arabia, Southeast Asia, Siberia, Croatia, Ireland, Roman settlers, and even Berbers, possibly from the Caliphate in the Middle Ages. If a town had been a few more miles south, In the year 450 AD, it might have been English today instead of Scottish. More recently, you can add to Scotland's list Polish, Indian and Pakistani people. Scotland's largest minority group today is Asian, mostly from Pakistan. So who out of that long list, stretching back through time, gets to say they were Scottish? If an Indian family moved there in the 1890s, then lived in Glasgow for the next 130 years, with some marrying Scots, others marrying immigrant Polish, yet all identifying as Scottish whilst retaining elements of Indian subculture, aren't they truly Scottish? I would say yes. It is likely, though, that they only settled in Scotland because of the empire. Yet if they are, some argue that means the white ethnic Scots having their longer-standing Scottish identity weakened? What if a Scottish woman marries a Nigerian man and he becomes Scottish? If he identifies as Scottish, is proud of his new homeland and keen to integrate, does that make him any less Scottish than a Scot whose great-great-grandfather fought at Culloden? For me, the answer, of course, is he is Scottish. And there is a vast difference between consensual immigration under a democratic framework, and an indigenous people being forced out of their homelands at gunpoint. This is, in many ways, the same issue confronting Australia at the moment. And the reason it matters is that Australia was principally settled by the Victorians as part of the settler empire. The Victorians, by and large, didn't have to think about the legacy of their empire once they left. Actually, quite a lot did. 
many felt that self-determinations for the territories in the settler empire was the goal and that this was a new world they were building. Others wondered if they were still part of the mother country's culture. Even in England, it is far from obvious who would qualify as indigenous if you applied some of the more stringent tests. The UK was first settled in prehistory by a group of people known as the Western hunter-gatherers, Mesolithic individuals from Spain, Hungary and Luxembourg. Genetics has shown that Cheddar Man was part of this group and was ethnically black. These people were later displaced or overlaid by Celts, Romans, Angles, Jutes, Danes, Normans, then mixed in with French refugees, Portuguese traders, Jewish moneylenders, often persecuted, more French immigration, then lots of Germans. To claim the UK has an indigenous people is in many ways nonsensical. The UK has a rolling population, and recently it has incorporated Africans, Caribbeans, Indians, Pakistanis, Israelis, Americans, Canadians and Australians. From the British Victorian point of view, the idea of indigenous rights was not easy to accept, and a lot of the problems we are looking at as a consequence just weren't envisaged. To a Victorian imperialist, if the UK had been subject to waves of conquest, then surely what counted for land ownership was that the strong had the right to take the land, and the land belonged to those with the strength to hold it. That seemed to be what history and later social Darwinism seemed to say. British culture has historically recognised the concept of right by conquest, which is a thread that historian Victor Davis Hanson ties to the Western military traditions of the citizen's soldier, the right to own land and voting rights tied to service and decisive battle to decide military issues. You can see it in Roman conquest, the English and Welsh wars, the Spanish invasion of the Americas, and much more. One of the reasons the Aztecs struggled to respond to the Spanish invasion was in part because they were conquerors of much of the land they ruled, and the people they had conquered decided the Spanish newcomers were a chance to strike back at their imperial Aztec overlords. Without this assistance and the European diseases ravaging the continent, the Spanish invaders would have been destroyed. There was also a fundamental cultural difference, which was the Spanish were motivated soldiers who wanted to crush an enemy in battle to control his lands, not engage in ritual battle for slaves to sacrifice like the Aztecs. The reality of human history is that people tend to move around a lot. Very few people can honestly be said to be from the group that occupied land in prehistory when it was truly empty of humans. As David Day said in his book Conquest, quote, while invading a territory, conquering its defenders and dispossessing its peoples is as old as history, the moral questions associated with it also have a long history, end quote. You can see how violent this question can become when you look at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or the ethnic civil wars in the Balkans. Both have instances where people claim they own land by ancestral right, even if their opponents 
also claim ancestral rights to the land. At a certain point, don't the claims of rights to the land pass away once it has been occupied by someone else for thousands of years? But if not, how far back do you go? And what do you do when the newcomers, who have perhaps migrated into a territory centuries ago, feel they are just as entitled to be called the natives with associated rights? When I say Australia from now on, I'm going to be talking about the landmass. The colonies in Australia were called just that and were not a unified nation. When Australia was discovered by the Europeans, it was clear the Aboriginal tribes absolutely were an indigenous people. There was no mistaking that. Australia was enormous for the Europeans and frankly alien to the first European explorers. To quote the excellent Bill Gummidge's book, The Largest Estate on Earth, quote, The Australian estate was remarkable. No estate on earth was on so much earth. Including Tasmania, Australia occupies 7.7 million square kilometres and straddles great diversity. Its southern neighbour is the Antarctic. Its northern third is in the tropics. Cape Byron in the east is 4,000 kilometres from Shark Bay in the west. And the land between includes Australia's most productive farmland and its biggest deserts. Southeast Cape in the south is 3,700 kilometres from Cape York in the north. Yet both support rainforest. Moving inland from the coast, the annual rainfall can decline by an inch a mile, although rain rarely falls predictably anywhere. End quote. The indigenous people of Australia are the Aboriginal peoples, but they aren't one homogenous group. There were lots of different tribes with their own beliefs, territories, and unique cultures. Nevertheless, they were clearly the original inhabitants of the continent when the Europeans arrived. At its heart, the issue revolved around the conflict between the indigenous group identifying themselves having a right to self-determination against the idea that no one group of humans can ever have permanent rights over the land in perpetuity. Mandy Yap and Eunice Yu, in their book The Neoliberal State, Recognition and Indigenous Rights, say self-determination can be defined as, quote, a basic human right that also carries instrumental value for individual well-being. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the principles of self-determination underpin the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, an international standard setting mechanism to support Indigenous Peoples' rights to a development paradigm that reflects their collective sense of identity built on the strength of their culture and identity and in balance with the environment, end quote. In the Australian landmass, there were no ancient monuments or temples but it isn't factually correct to say that there were no signs of agriculture or other structures. The Aboriginals were sadly seen as little better than cavemen by the first explorers. Watkins Tench, one of the officers in the first convict fleet in 1787, said, quote, It does not appear that these poor creatures have any fixed habitation, sometimes sleeping in a cavern of rock, which they make as warm as an oven by lighting a fire in the middle of it. 
they will take up their abode here, for one night perhaps, then in another the next night. At other times, and we believe mostly in summer, they take up their lodgings for a day or two in a miserable wigwam, which they made from bark of a tree. There are dispersed about the woods near the water, two, three, four together. Some oyster, cockle and mussel shells lie about the entrance of them, but not in any quantity to indicate they make these huts their constant habitation. Other settlers were more blunt about what they wanted to happen to the aboriginals, as related to Bishop Polding. Quote, I have heard myself, heard a man, educated and a large proprietor of sheep and cattle, maintain that there was no more harm in shooting a native than in shooting a wild dog. I have heard it maintained by others that it is the course of providence that blacks should disappear before the white, and the sooner the process was carried out the better for all parties. I fear such opinions prevail to a great extent. End quote. For these early explorers, seeing the tribes as savages or cavemen was a great advantage to their claim to the land. It was grossly unfair, of course. In his book, Dark Emu, author David Pascoe presents a lot of material to show the sophistication of Aboriginal agriculture and economics. The material was recognised by the incoming colonial settlers who frequently noted crop planting of some kind or agricultural tool use. The simplistic divide between hunter-gatherers and sedentary farmers ignores the vast complexities of actual hunter-gatherer lifestyles, which often include long settled periods that can also include farming before migrating. The original inhabitants of Australia had a careful system of social management that helped them survive and thrive in the harsh conditions on the continent, especially when combined with building weirs and dams, and the use of fire as a tool for cultivation. Many of the early settlers recognised the clear evidence of indigenous agriculture and just ignored it. Captain Cook had arrived during a race for discoveries between the British and the French in the 18th century. Cook wanted to claim Australia as a British discovery for the crown and therefore British property. When you look at it, this was preposterous. Seriously, when he arrived, he had a tiny crew. He wasn't the first European to visit the continent. He was just the first European to map New Zealand, the south and the eastern coast of Australia. Crucially, he claimed the area that would become New South Wales for the British Crown under the doctrine of terra nullis. That means land that belongs to no one. This was fundamentally different to the British and French approach in India, where such a claim would have been too laughable to even mention. India was clearly a civilised country, with palaces, merchants, armies, ports and great cities. It had a long and complex history and was known to the Europeans. With upper-class children studying the classics had heard about it and revered tales about Alexander the Great, Australia was in a very different position. The Aboriginal inhabitants had lived in Australia for thousands and thousands of years. They were clearly the original inhabitants of the continent, but for the Europeans, they were an inconvenience. Terra Nullis gave the Europeans a fig leaf of self-justification 
they could claim that the land was not owned because the inhabitants didn't own it for farming or use it for improvements or for cities. That allowed the British to perform that nasty but essential mental distancing required for conquest. As has been observed time and time again, no one wants to be the bad guy in the way they imagine their life story. People invent self-justifications or change the mental script instead. Instead of saying, I was cruel to my husband for years, belittling him, controlling him, making him come last after my own desires and wants so I could get what I wanted, people say, it is his fault for not being more energetic or interesting, so I had to yell at him, call him names, and tell him what to do to make him a better person. He is lucky. I was willing to make the effort to improve him. Notice the twisting of positions. Here the statement might or might not be true, but it is far easier to sleep at night if you convince yourself of the second one. Many of the incoming settlers performed a similar mental gymnastic with their view of the native tribes. There's another uncomfortable fact to wrestle with here. At some point, a European power was going to occupy the Australias. The British ultimately were the ones to do it. But if not them, it would have been the French or the Spanish or the Portuguese or the Germans or the Belgians. If the Napoleonic Wars hadn't destroyed French naval power, then Australia might have ended up with an awkward split between French and British power. As in North America and Canada, the native peoples would have been swept into conflict. Naturally, there is a lot of debate over the topic, with the shortcomings seized on by many sides of the modern Australian identity debates. But it is not hard to accept that Aboriginal hunting, gathering and crop growing are broadly in line with other similar groups studied around the world, with allowances for climate and specific food types. This could certainly include some settlements, even if not totally permanent, and intertribal trade networks. They can, in many lights, be described as sophisticated. There is a tendency to overuse the word sophisticated and advanced when describing pre-European or pre-literate cultures to ensure that students understand the effort and extent of building, culture and economics to avoid falling into cliches about primitive peoples, cavemen or Stone Age, etc. We need to be careful that this discussion of sophistication doesn't over or underplay things and that it doesn't go overboard and we end up in ancient aliens territory where ancient buildings and technologies are described as being so amazing and sophisticated they can't be replicated, therefore it's aliens. If you study hunter-gatherer and early farming cultures, it is perfectly legitimate to point out complexities in them and ensure those are valued. But it can't be overdone when comparing to other cultures. Take astronomy and navigation. It is totally right to say that Polynesians had an amazing understanding of the constellations and highly developed navigational skills for their technology levels. The feats of some of these navigators are impressive to say the least. What can go too far is to then say, so they were more sophisticated than the Europeans when they arrived. That completely ignores the enormous sophistication 
of what the European navigators themselves were doing. Polynesian fans would perhaps say, look, these guys travelled the vast reaches of the Pacific using nothing but wooden canoes and intense study of stars and currents to do some amazing navigation, so they are just better. The counterpoint is that, yes, and the European navigators built larger ships and more reliable technologies that allowed them to navigate from the Mediterranean coasts through the Atlantic storms around Cape Horn or the Cape of Good Hope, then across that same Pacific, even discovering islands that the Polynesians hadn't. It just seems less impressive to us because most of us engaged in these debates are descended from the European navigator faction and familiarity breeds contempt. I'm pointing this out so that you remember that while we can academically note the differences of cultural achievements between different peoples, to Europeans at the time of European Aboriginal contact, it would have seemed to them blindingly obvious that they were more sophisticated than the Aboriginals. In everything from shipbuilding to navigation to weapons to metallurgy, banking and finance to military efficiency and even in art, even if a time-travelling academic had popped in and said, hey, the native tribes had a complex and evolving culture and actually have a sophisticated method of fire stick farming, stone shaping and creating a form of thermoplastic resin to bond stone tools to wood, I suspect the academic would have got a shrug from the Victorians along the lines of, really? That's nothing. We've moved beyond sticks and glue. We have ships, cannon, iron ploughs, steam engines, and frankly everyone we've encountered when we land are simply backwards primitives compared to us. Why should we respect people who live by throwing sticks at animals and scraping a living from fishing? For many modern people, this just feels wrong because it feels somehow unkind, unfair or racist. Put it another way then, if you are living in a Western country today with a constitution that mostly protects human rights, individual liberty and the freedom of conscience, do you honestly, hand on your heart, feel that your culture is perfectly equal to, say, theocratic Iran's and not superior to it? After all, Iran has an extremely long history of civilization with some breathtaking achievements in art, science, literature and mathematics. It is the heir to the history of one of the founding civilizations in the entire of history. Today, it is on a technological par with other developed nations, with cars, roads, power stations, TVs, restaurants, a huge oil-producing industry, and the like. It just happens to have what is to many Westerners, and indeed many Iranians, a government that is theocratic and repressive. But even that theocratic government is probably more free and democratic than most pre-Renaissance European monarchies. Isn't it a little tempting to Westerners to say, well, Iran represses women on a systemic basis, so it is okay to criticise their culture and pressure them to change to be more in line with ours. A lot of Iranians, including many women, might say, great, we'd love a new form of women's rights, but it has to be our new form, not yours. Others might say, 
typical Western imperialism and arrogance. You pretend to respect other cultures. You push your values on everyone who acts in ways you don't like. You don't respect other people's customs. You just want your own culture in every country in the world, but dressed in different clothes to amuse the tourists. Tolerance of other people's values is really easy when you approve of those values, but is a whole other born game when those values include, say, Chinese women binding their feet as part of a patriarchal beauty standard. The actual history of settlement in Australia was complex, and much was done by convicts rather than explorers and professional settlers. Much of the abstract philosophy would have been alien to them, something that gentlemen could discuss in clubs or lecture halls, but of little value on the frontier. The position of Aboriginals in law remained vague as they were conquered. The first governor of New South Wales, Captain Arthur Phillips, has issued instructions in April 1787 to conciliate the tribes and punish settlers who wronged them. That was easier said than done. He was running a penal colony filled with a lot of very unhappy and dangerous men. As Robert Hughes noted in his book, The Fatal Shore, this was not an attempt to build a utopia. It was a plan to turn a large, unexplored continent into a jail. But even then, there were people settling in the Australias who weren't conflicts and had a very different vision for the continent. Indigenous rights weren't a fully recognised concept by the Victorians, yet there was sometimes a growing recognition that native peoples were entitled to rights, even if framed as the rights of subjects of the Crown. You can see it in debates, not just in the British Parliament, but it was also raised in many imperial territories. As early as 1837, when Victoria came to the throne, in Parliament, the House of Commons Select Committee on Aboriginal Tribes produced a report stating that the Aborigines had been wronged and should be considered British subjects under Crown law. Yet this debate was coming at a time when the colonies in Australia were moving from a settler frontier to a more established proto-state and therefore engaging in a fierce debate about how they were related to the UK. Were the Australian colonies going to become united? Self-governing, a form of utopia? Were they going to follow British cultural and legal reforms or create something unique in the new world they were building? How could the Aborigines be included in this? Some liberals asked for protection of the indigenous peoples and incorporation into the rule of law. Landmark acts were passed, yet even in the late 1870s problems would continue, with some colonists expressing views like those of novelist Anthony Trollope on the native tribes needing, quote, to be exterminated and the sooner that their doom be accomplished so that there be no cruelty, the better it will be for civilization. This was from a liberal conservative author who expressed in his writings his concerns over the irrationality of political hierarchies where power wasn't always given to those who deserved it. So it is not correct to say that none of the Victorians cared about people's rights, including many native people's rights, saying that created problems of its own. Many of the tribes didn't have any treaties with the incoming settlers 
let alone a desire to become subjects of Britain. If they weren't part of the British Empire and imperial subjects, how could they be afforded rights or tried for crimes? Some colonists fumed that the Aborigines could therefore murder them, but not be put on trial if they weren't British subjects. The messy reality of a settler frontier life meant that even if Aborigines were recognised as having rights as British subjects, enforcing those rights was hard and getting access to positions of power impossible. The old acquittal or judgement in an individual's favour simply didn't balance out the institutional racism against the Aborigines. Okay, we're going to take a break here as this episode is already running rather long and is late. I'll post part two of this on the 1st of November. It'll cover more of the background of empire in the Australias, the impact of liberalism, and the difference in worldviews between the Europeans and the Aborigines, and, if possible, the timeline leading to the early Victorian era in the Australias. Thanks for your patience. Once again, I'm sorry it's late. Life interferes and all that. Take care, and I'll see you soon.